Welcome to episode 119, Lifting Women, Appreciating the Burden of Sexism in Society, featuring Dr. Jamita Barlow. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and we are talking about a topic today that is very near and dear to my heart. I am honored to be joined by Dr. Jamita Nicole Barlow. She is a community health psychologist and public health scientist with specializations in gender, sexuality, and race. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Barlow. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here on International Women's Day. And also, I understand your birthday. So happy birthday. It's true. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am fortunate enough to have been born on International Women's Day. <laughs> um, Dr. Barlow, thank you again for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and your specialization as you and I today are talking about um, really some of the details about what it means to be a woman in our society that I think we often overlook and we forget. What what a wonderful like introduction and conversation to talk about being a woman, what it means to be a woman in this day and age, and also just along this line and continuum as I think about all the women in my family. So I am, as you mentioned, a community psychologist, and most of my work examines and looks at Black women's mental health, particularly as it relates to cardiometabolic syndrome, so ways in which to disrupt that process of this overabundance of cortisol in the body and as a way of addressing obesity, diabetes, et cetera. And so that's really where my passion lies. I do this work in different areas. I do this in communities. I've had retreats where I do this work. But one of my first loves is writing. So I teach writing about women's health at George Washington University. That's my day job. I love it. I enjoy it. But I bring into the classroom the work and background I have in women's studies, the background I have in Black studies and psychology and public health, to have this conversation, these different ways of knowing um, the roles and systems of oppression that contribute to what we look at in terms of health inequities. And so while I am a professor, I am also a writer, an editor, um, a woman, and I, I look forward to really having a larger and longer conversation about the role of women and what that means for health, what that means for our agency over our health, what that means for how we interact with others and what are the systems at play that allow us to navigate in these different spaces. I'm so grateful to have you today and talk about this. And also knowing that while we're talking about women, we're also going to be talking about the intersectionality. So looking at how this overlaps with other identities um, and how that impacts the way people move in society and through their lives. This topic is one that has occurred to me for so many years in the little ways that women move through their lives, you know, whether that's getting out of my car and being mindful of my surroundings when I go to any store or to the ATM, anything like that. Um, you know, I had a conversation with a young woman in my re- life recently who went on a date and it wasn't a good date, but there was still an expectation at the end of the date that she have sexual relations with that person and these pressures that women face. So 
let's just start by talking about some of the inequities. If you could share some of the data and the information that you know, I guess, to set the stage of like, here's, you know, here's what we're talking about, and then how it actually impacts women in the real world. Right. So this is, you know, of course, I'm going to first say that this can be a contentious issue when you bring up this topic about the socialization of girls and women um, throughout their life. And so in the classroom, I'll give an example. In the classroom, the way in which I address this is I have students think about when you were age, what age were you when you first realized the gender that you identify with today? Um, And for a lot of students, what they find is that they were maybe three or four. And the reason that they realized that was their gender was based on what they were told they could and could not do. Maybe they could, they had to wear a skirt or a dress. Or I think about my own example, my grandmother saying, you know, girls keep their legs closed. But everyone knows it's more comfortable to have your legs open if you're out playing. Um, And so it's these things that we've been taught these social norms, right? So there are these characteristics, these habits, how we walk in the world, how we are aware of how the world perceives us. So as women in general, um, there is often, when I talk to women, a lot of times women pay a lot of attention in what they're wearing when they leave the classroom, when they leave the classroom or when they leave their house. They spend a lot of time thinking about what they're going to wear that day. Not necessarily because they're vain or they want it to be stylish, but often it's what can I wear so that I don't get attention, undue attention. So particularly women who walk past people who might catcall or they, where they could potentially experience street harassment. And so that being said, at a very early age, women are learning how to make themselves smaller really thinking through this erasure process that happened so that you don't rock the boat, that you don't create any kind of disharmony. And how does that translate into how do we interact with one another? How do we interact with ourselves? And more importantly, how the system kind of creates this dynamic. And so as you age, how does this happen in the classroom? We know that particularly in the STEM field, that a lot of girls as they age lose interest. Is it because girls are less likely to be in STEM? No, that they're not capable of being in STEM and understanding science or health, no. But part of it is we have certain practices. I remember when I was in high school, my physics teacher wouldn't call on me, would call on all the boys, but would rarely call on the girls. And I've taught students for several years. um, And some of my computer science students tell me the same story. If they don't get called on, they can't find a group to be in. And so how are our structures in society normalizing this behavior that really puts women on the outside, right? Because this doesn't fit the norm, right? In order for you as a woman, these are habits that you should have. These are spaces you should be in. And so starting as a young girl, you're taught this is how you minimize yourself. And as you age and progress, how you walk outside this is how you should look and act um, in order to protect yourself, maybe because the world is bad, right? You're, you're given this narrative, so you have to protect yourself. And then going into institutions, classrooms, workplaces, as you age, you might be less likely to speak up because you're comfortable being in the space where you have to make yourself small. Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. What I'm saying is that this is how we've been socialized. We tend to socialize 
um, girls to be able to take care of themselves in case something bad happens to them. And I think that fear also contributes to an ongoing fear that a lot of women have. And all of these things are, are mixed in and related to these gender and social norms. And so when I think about the gendered and social norms, that's when I also think about intersectionality, because what that means for women and girls of color um, versus women who aren't of color, so white women, is something different, right? There, there's an added layer. I think about all the videos we see of young girls whose womanhood isn't respected, for instance, by police, right? And we have so many examples in, in the last year, for sure, of how women and how girls, especially very recently, the nine-year-old girl um, in New York, I believe, we have so many examples of girls not being viewed in the feminine, not being viewed for, for Black girls, brown girls, not being viewed that way. And so I'm bringing that up to say that how do we change how we do things every day? How do we change gendered and social norms? And that starts with taking one step every day to create that change. So if we know that girls at a very young age are being taught, this is what you wear, these are habits you should do, then as parents, as part of our parental practices, we have to even check in with ourselves and say, why am I putting this on my child, right? As a mother, as a father, or as whoever is raising that child, why am I saying this is the only way they can do that? Maybe show them other ways. And so that's how we change that. But we have to disrupt that process. But the first step of disrupting that process is recognizing that there is a socialization process. And that's what's going to happen. That's how we change and really rethink um, the role of, the, of women um, and how we've been socialized in that way. I appreciate you coming back to that concept of socialization and just early conditioning. And we know from the studies just and this and it's not just girls that are being socialized. You know, it's it's with the boys, the the norms about don't cry or be strong. And, and there are huge implications of that in our society um, and don't talk about your feelings. And so it's it's cutting across all of these different intersections. So it's not just about women. But today, you know, for me, as a white woman, who is also the mother of a, of a girl of color, that has been, um, for me, that was really emotional. When I had that ultrasound and the, and the tech said, do you want to know? Do you want to know? And I looked at my partner and I said, yes. And I, for some reason, I'm like, you know, this human in my body, I think, is, is a boy. I have a boy. I see myself as a boy mom, whatever that means. And when she said, you're having a girl, it was actually really emotional and pretty sad for me. And that was a lot of reflection of what it meant to raise a girl in today's world, what it meant to raise a girl of color in today's world. And sitting that, sitting with that now for years in the awareness of who she is, her name in Gaelic means means warrior, and it was done very intentionally. It was my awareness as a woman of like, here are the some of the things that I have faced in my experience of harassment, in my experiences of sexual assault, and the awareness of what has what I have faced, what other people around me have faced, and what she may face in the world as a woman. Um, 
those are the things that I know I've wondered about, and I'm sure many of our listeners have. I know they're the things you wonder about too, and that's why we're here. It's like kind of, okay, you know, let's first talk about what's actually happening in this inequity. And then and then we go to the conversation of like, and here's what we do about it. But I think, at least speaking for myself, for so many years, kind of being put in this box of, you know, always being polite or the the incredible, and you probably know statistics on this much better than I do, but the incredible female habit of over-apologizing. My goodness, because how dare we take up space at the grocery store, even though we're just standing in line, but we apologize for it. It's incredible. But so these habits that become just this, I don't know, like I said, this yoke we carry of being a woman in, in our society. You nodded. I saw you smile. Uh, tell me, tell me what you're thinking, Dr. Barlow. Yeah, I mean, there's so many language. Again, as I mentioned, my day job is I teach writing um, about women's health, and language is so important, right? Because whether it's people saying, you know, instead of saying "I'm sorry," we can say "Excuse me," right? But a lot of times, that's this. That's another coded piece we've been taught that we can't take up space. Or even if we're in a space we're not supposed to be in, we say, I'm sorry, right? Um, that language, this, these, this, apo- this apology, I think, is rooted. And I think I love how you, you're, you're, you're saying, let's stay here a while and let's talk about this because we don't spend enough time talking about this. Language is important. I think about even in weight loss. We know this in weight loss communications that women tend to say, I need to lose weight because like we own the weight. But we know from studies that men tend to say, I need to drop some weight. I need to release weight, right? And so it's there's a different connotation based on even our interaction of how we have been taught. And then over time, how we continue to perpetuate these ideals of being responsible for so many things that we don't have to be responsible for, right? So we don't have to be responsible for other people's actions towards us. But the world teaches us that if we wear a certain dress, right, a certain type of clothing, then we're responsible for what happens to us, whether we're sexually assaulted, whether we're kicked out of school because what we're wearing is too revealing, right? And there are some gender disparities. I hear so many times from students um, and even some of the girls that I've, I've worked with in communities where they're, you know, black leggings, those are the things that people are wearing these days, right? And so that they'll be sent home when we, you know, when schools were in in place, they'll be sent home because it's too revealing. Whereas boys can wear certain things and not all school systems are like that, but our structures and our systems are often not in alignment with what's happening in terms of the clothes that are available to girls um, at a young age and what's seen as appropriate attire. And that also doesn't align with language and how we own that. And so what happens is this interplay. And so it's, you're the girl trying to make meaning of your experience, trying to understand what's happening when you're being blamed for wearing something that's in the store that you're supposed to be able to wear for your age that's appropriate and you're being punished in school um, or you're being sexually assaulted because of that. And so I think- We have so many examples of that. So that's like young people in the classroom, in the workplace, the same thing can happen that, you know, even culturally we see differences. So in the workplace, you might have interactions 
where certain groups are taught to have more confidence in the, in a, a meeting at work. And some are taught that to be the most respectful is to be quiet. Yeah. And so we have all these variations of how women find themselves either apologizing or taking ownership for something they had absolutely no control over. And that behavior definitely starts at a young age. That sexualization, I I think, I, I know, again, I can only speak for myself, but there are very explicit memories I have at different ages where something seemed like it would be fine, but then somebody else sexualized it. And then I felt shame. And like one of my memories that I remember too vividly, I was maybe 10 or 11 kayaking with my family. And we went under a bridge on the river we were at and there were men on the bridge. And I was kayaking, I was wearing a bathing suit, but there were men that started catcalling me. And I rem- I don't remember which parent it was, but I remember one of my parents sharply saying, Beth, put on a shirt. And that idea of I had done something wrong by having the audacity to wear a bathing suit while I was kayaking, and it made my safety, my responsibility at 10 or 11. And, that, and I have experiences younger than that. But the reason I bring this up is because I think as women, we don't talk about it. And I, I guess what I'm saying to our listeners, if you're a woman, if you, you know, like, it's okay if you're nodding along going, oh, yeah, I remember when that stuff happened. Because that stores in our bodies that shame of like, I did something wrong by wearing a bathing suit kayaking. Well, no, I didn't. But how many years did I carry that with me? Yeah, no, I love that example. And I'm sorry that that was your experience, right? But we we know that this is normal, normalized in so many ways. So there are two ways of looking at that, right? Because as a child, and as for most women, it's experiences like that that really dictate you're now mindful of what you wear and when you're out and about because of those experiences. But then also your parent had this forethought to know I can't do anything about what they're going to do. So the best way I can protect my daughter is to tell her to do this. And so those are two ways of looking at it. And so when I think about at least, you know, in terms of creating change, we have to intervene on how that's not being acceptable. That type of behavior is not acceptable. And we're in the middle of a lot of that in this moment. And I think that's what people have challenges with because then they're like, well, it's always been this way. Why are we changing? It's like, well, doesn't mean it was right. You know, right now, so we are now, gosh, you know, a week and a half past the Super Bowl and this conversation about Janet Jackson, conversation about Britney Spears, and both of those. And then here's Justin Timberlake standing on the side, kind of like, oh, you know, and to his credit, like he finally made a statement about all that. But I I mean, who doesn't remember that? If you were alive when that was happening, I remember thinking to myself, I don't understand how Janet Jackson just took all the fall when she wasn't even the one who did it. The thing that happened at the Super Bowl, she wasn't even the one who did it or the way that we treated Britney Spears and that she was this object, not a human being, the way that media tore her apart. And the, you know, there's so many examples of this, but it's, it's really, I've, I've said it while watching many a sitcom, you know, it's like, when you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because that was on the in the back of my mind, as we were talking about that, um, because we don't talk about the cost to women, the psychological cost, the economic cost, we know now, I mean, you see these celebrities, and they, you know, they make the money, etc. But what we don't see is that Janet and Brittany, well, Janet, in that instance, 
had a hard time. Even to this day, people won't give her opportunities because of something she had no control over. And I think everyday women have similar experiences that they're blamed for things that were not in their control. And so how do we like move from there? Do you move from there? These are all questions, but I think the main question is we need to do something about our boys and our men, right? Because there's so much, when I look at a lot of the sexual violence research, a lot of times we're always intervening. There's a lot of literature out there that talks about language and um, the importance of language when you're talking about sexual violence. So we might say that someone's a survivor, for example, or we might say that, you know, Beth was beaten. And then it goes from Beth was beaten to Beth is a survivor. Like we've taken out the who owns the responsibility for what happened if there is a situation. And so I bring that up because we need to really, instead of intervening, we need to give space to people who experience this, but we also need to have accountability, right? And people, accountability is so important. We can't have truth and reconciliation until we have some type of accountability. And so I'm glad that Justin finally said something. I'll I'll admit just on a personal level, it's been hard to support him ever since that happened. If he imagine what he could have done for men and for this movement of saying, you know what, I take responsibility of this. And the fact that he didn't do that, what does that mean? What are these? These are ways in which men and boys can show up as allies when they see something happening, taking ownership, like, look, that was not the intention. It was an accident. I apologize. Having these type of conversations, holding men accountable in these ways. And holding women accountable who perpetuate it. That's how we really start to address that. But going back to the sexual violence point um, that I want to mention is that we need to intervene in spaces where we don't typically intervene in, in sexual violence. A lot of our work and effort has been to women. How do you protect yourself instead of saying, look, why are you doing this? Why are you feeling like you have to harm girls and women in this way? What is it about our society that's set up that really um, promotes that type of behavior, makes it acceptable? And we see it in so many areas. Absolutely. And um, like you have a specialization in the the what I'll say the female side of that coin. Yes, that's a, that's another interview that we need to have is like the male side of this and this socialization. And there's so many examples of that. Um, again, thinking about my own life, there are experience that I experiences that I had. So I'm you know comfortable talking about these things. When I was in college, um, there was a, a party on the street, and I walked down the street with a group of friends, and a man touched my body where he had no right to touch my body, and I turned around, and there were other male friends of mine around me. And I was just like horrified and stunned by what had just happened. I had just been sexually assaulted and it was on the street and, you know, everyone saw it. And when I looked to one of my best male friends, he said, ah, he's just drunk having a good time. And there it was. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, I love that you brought that example. As you were talking, I was like, I can't even count. It's happened so much. I can't even count, Um, especially in college, right? How many times I've been in a social situation and that's happened. And not only is accept like we as women know it's wrong, but it's one of those things 
that we even tell ourselves it's acceptable in that situation, right? It's like, well, that's what happens when you go to this particular social scene, that we, we let it go, even though we say it's wrong in that situation. For instance, we wouldn't expect it on the street. If it was, it was, if it was on the street, we'd say that's street harassment. We'd call someone. But we're in, when we're in specific situations, or even when we're with people, for instance, that we trust, and they still don't say anything, right? Or they say, oh, well, you know, that's so-and-so being so-and-so. That's never acceptable. We have to, I, I think about those lessons we learned in kindergarten to keep your hands to yourself. Like we have to really teach our children that. And somewhere along the way, it changes. And it changes because kids see what their parents do. They see what's acceptable. And so often I look at, when I talk about um, the, you know, racism, I say this all the time, you know, kids aren't born racist the same way kids aren't born sexist or to perpetuate, you know, these type of acts, but they are very susceptible to their environment and what they see um, and what's allowed to happen. And not all kids will perpetuate it, but some do. And so we have to really think through um, how are we as a society structured to accept behaviors like this without accountability? Absolutely. And then taking it into the therapy room, I think for me, and I'm using myself as an example here because it's, it's the best example I have. So not as, you know, just a therapist, but as a human, as a woman, that these things kind of just get tossed onto the trauma heap, these experiences. And my work with 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 women of all ages, all types, and appreciating that we just put these things on the trauma heap and then we kind of move on with our lives, but that they're they become part of our psyche. And I think the power of sitting in the room with somebody and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Go back to that. Go back to that comment of what a male gynecologist said to you about your body the first time you had an exam. Go back. Tell me more about it. Yeah, there's so many examples. Like while you were just talking about that, it prompted me to just really think about this one statistic that blew my mind years ago when I first heard it, that one in three Black women have been sexually assaulted. Okay. Um, and so in my work, I look at intergenerational trauma um, and how to disrupt that. And when you understand this history of how, for example, Black women have been treated um, here in the U.S., and you understand that even, you know, there's a case in 1855, there was a woman in Ohio who w was charged with, um, and she, was in the, she ended up being killed by, you know, or uh, um, in terms of being criminalized for her own rape, because she, the person who had enslaved her, raped her and she fought back. But at the time, there was a law in the books that said, hey, that was self-defense, but they didn't acknowledge that. And so when I talk about trauma, I talk about what happens when you have this legacy of trauma in a group of people. And so if you know, and you hear this from your grandmother, your mother, that look, this is just the way things are done. Put your head down, do what you need to do in order to survive. And that's the story of so many women, not just Black women, but so many women who maybe someone they knew fought back and they feel like they can't fight. And so I think, as you mentioned in therapy, that is very real, that people are negotiating. Do I say something if something like this happens to me? How do I manage that? Is it worth it, right? And I think that's something that we definitely need to separate from other types of trauma, 
because I think a lot of women in order to survive, put that somewhere and because there's not much they can do. Exactly. And I think that just as we're having these conversations of the, the the trauma heap with people of color, with different ethnicities, with with religious minorities, with uh, with members of the queer population, these are all part of you know when we're looking at, say, for example, the book "The Body Keeps Score." These are the things that the body is keeping score about, and I think it's personally really occurred to me in the last five years in my reflection and, and you know, critically thinking about this, looking at my female clients. And I, I mean, I had that experience with a client talking about an early experience at a gynecologist. And then we went deep into that, into like what that experience was like and what beliefs she had about it. If she told anybody about it, what, she, what assumptions she made about her body and whether or not she was gross, she was dirty, whatever you know, rules or, or beliefs she had applied based on this one interaction that happened so fast. And we spent an entire session talking about it. And I think so, you know, in my conversations with other experts on these other marginalized identities, it's like, bring it into the room. You know, when something happens, are you as a clinician, whether you're part of that population or not, are you saying, hey, I saw the news about blah, blah, blah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we have to bring it into the room. We have to keep it alive. And, but I think it's, especially now with the pandemic, I think a lot of people are even, and you can tell me this better, are people are layering, they're, they're really like prioritizing, I should say, what trauma they're going to manage. Right. And yes, I think absolutely. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I feel like the pandemic trauma is something they feel like they can manage a little bit, even though they don't have control over it. But I think the trauma, the, the types that we're talking about that show up in the medical, the medical exam room, um, the trauma that I think about, you mentioned that particular example. I think about Dr. Susan Moore, a physician who died um, trying to get treated for COVID. And even though this wasn't necessarily a gender issue, it was intersectionality, that she yeah, even absolutely. went to the hospital where she worked and people wouldn't see her. What is happening that we're harming women, whether it's sexually, whether it's erasing them, not even acknowledging them, not seeing them, that is traumatic. And what happens, I think women are negotiating, that is so big, I can't do anything with it. I need to just put it somewhere. Let me tackle the low-hanging fruit. And I think that level of trauma, as you know, over time develops into more. I think about, I do a lot of work. Um, I've done a lot of work in Ghana and um, in other countries. But when I think about different ways of knowing, whether it's indigenous um, medicine, um, medicine rooted in African ways of knowing or Chinese medicine, what's essential in all of them is that if you don't manage your emotions, it can turn into some type of health outcome. And we know that clinically, right? And so that being said, when I think about the fact that women and their symptoms of heart disease or the the sex differences we're seeing even in COVID, when I think about the gender differences we have and several other health outcomes, what role are emotions playing in that unresolved emotion? And so then the imperative becomes we have to address it recognizing we can't 
always directly address the system. So it becomes, how do you survive? How do you thrive in a system that further perpetuates an environment and a culture that allows this doctor to touch you inappropriately? Um, and that knowing that that's probably not an isolated case that allows a system to, we know from over the last year that a lot of women of color have been turned away for COVID treatment. Um, like that is, what can you do about that, right? And so people are negotiating. Right, the, or the rate that uh, women of color are dying in childbirth in the United States is unbelievable. And and I mean, I've looked into the research too, that for most doctors, regardless of that doctor's gender, they will discount the pain reported by a woman and will inflate the pain reported by a man. And so there these are these systems, these disparities. And yes, to a degree, like, yeah, I'm airing my grievances and I'm saying like, this is really messed up. Um, that said, I think it's important that we acknowledge for ourselves, like, yeah, this this is what's happened to me as a woman. And then this is how I make space in the room for other women to find their healing. And there's something very holy about that to me. I've had that experience many times of, you know, a, a, whether it's a straight woman, it's trans woman, gay woman, woman of color, whoever it is saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, back up, go back to that, that thing that you just said in that story about that date, or about why you don't think you got that promotion, or about the thing that happened at the hardware store, go back to that and tell me more. And I think for me, you know, this idea of ourselves being healed as we're healing have had that experience of like the shared uh, camaraderie in, yeah, that's awful that that happened to you. That's not okay. Yeah, how we relate to one another, how we dialogue, this self-reflexivity that we engage in, right? This interrogating of ourselves, making meaning of our experiences as a way of acknowledging not only connection um, in, in women's and gender studies, we, we have, um, there's a, this concept of womanism and one of the major, and it was coined by Alice Walker, but it's one of the major modalities as described by Laylee Mapyron um, is dialogue with one another. How do we dialogue? How do we, how are we negotiating what's happened with ourselves and finding community with others, right? And that's essential, I think, in doing this work and not only just creating community, but in making people feel open that they can talk about that. And I'm thinking more of like in group settings. I do a lot of work in group settings. And so that's going to work well there. Um, you mentioned in terms of talking about like the, the, the statistics for maternal health. I like to tell the story. My great grandmother died giving birth to my grandmother. Um, in 1924. Maternal mortality is something that's been around for a very long time, that disparity. And even so many years later, we're still having this issue. We're seeing the same thing happening. And to me, it speaks to, I think, this theme that what can we do as individuals? What can we do? How we interact with one another? And what are things that are at the systems level that we can all work towards that are a little bit harder for us to do as individuals. And I think it's that negotiation, recognizing what we can do, what we can't do, but together what we can accomplish at that systemic level. And I think that's how we make meaning of these experiences. I think that's how we understand how 
this woman's experience in this part of the world may not affect me directly, but I can identify and together we can create change at a systemic level. And I think, you know, on International Women's Day, it's so nice to really think about how women are connected. Even if I don't understand what's happening in this other country, that I understand what it means not to be listened to, not to be heard, not to be valued, not to be respected. And so in parts of the world, there are some privileges that women have that other women don't. And um, whether it's driving, whether it's getting educated um, or getting an education, whether it's working and thinking through what we know is that when you educate a woman, you educate a family. And so if we can develop these kinships across the board that are rooted in this dialogue, in this, for lack of a better term, sisterhood, these are ways in which we can together create change at that systemic level. And we can have change the policies. When I think about these doctors doing what they're doing in the in the exam room, it's really rooted in their training. Like it comes back to the systemic piece. We have to talk about why there was a recent article out of Health Affairs that came um not Health Affairs, um New England Journal of Medicine that really looked at race race-based algorithms. And we know that there's sex-based algorithms. Literally, when you go to the doctor, just because of your race, a point might be added or something might change a particular formula. We know that for several formulas. Similarly, that happens um, based on, on sex. If we're taking these things into account, we're, that's the systemic practice of really furthering the bias. And so then you come into the exam room as a patient, as a woman, and you're not believed because it could be in that algorithm, right? In terms of your pain level. And so it's so important. And, you know, and I want to add to that, that we don't want to blame women for what they're thinking about in terms of their pain. So often, even in when someone says your pain level on a scale of one to 10, we also know from data that women tend to not say what their pain really is right? So there's even like, you've been taught to make yourself smaller. So you don't want to rock the boat too much. So it's multiple levels where we're seeing um, this normalization of gendered behavior, where intersectionality plays a role. And what's resulting is that women are faring poorer in many ways, um, and women of color even more so. I think, you know, the the intersectionality in this can't be ignored. And of course, that's, that's an inherent part of this conversation of um, overlap between marginalized identities. And and obviously, one that you know quite a bit about because of your specialization. And so I, I want to say to our listeners, yes, we, we know that intersection is there and trying to cut through and have this conversation about the feminine, if you will, and really what the implications of that are in a patriarchal society. And one of the questions I have for you when I say the word feminist, what does that mean to you in your role in academia as a sociologist, as a psychologist? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So as a psychologist, as someone who spent a lot of time in a women's and gender studies department, one of my favorite questions to answer, particularly because I'll have students who come in my classroom and they will say, I'm not a feminist. And I'm like, it's okay if you don't call yourself a feminist. But do you believe that people should have equal access, that, that they, you believe in equality, that 
people should be treated the same when they walk down the street, that you should, you know, people should have equal access to getting educated, et cetera. And as a whole, most people say, yes, I believe in these things. That's what being a feminist is. It's also acknowledging, though, there are sex differences. It doesn't mean that men and women are the exact same or any other gender is the exact same, but it means that we believe that you should be treated just as fairly as anyone else, regardless of race, class, gender, et cetera, all of these identities. And so to me, that's what a feminist means. It means that you believe in equality. And to, you know, to take it further, the recognition that not everybody starts on the same playing field, right? There's some women who have it a little harder. There's some men who have it a little harder. And that's why we talk about supports for these folks, right? That we have programs to really introduce more women to STEM, right? Um, and these programs work. We have more women going into STEM. We have more women doctors. These programs in the 80s and the 90s, they're working. Um, they've worked so well, the same even in the veterinarian field. Now we have more women vets than men. So now there's this movement <laughs> to get more men to become veterinarians. And so it's one of those things that we know what to do. We can do it. Um, when we see these inequities, what are the supports that we need to ensure that we have representation? Who's missing from the table? That's what I always like to say. Who's not at the table? And how can we get everyone at the table? And that's what being a feminist is. It's about recognizing equality, but understanding we all start differently. You and I talked about this before we were recording. And that so place at the table, that was my observation, having been at so many conferences as a presenter, as an attendee, that it felt like even I didn't have a place at the table. And here we are having this conversation. And I'm really glad that this is a table that um, that we that we have in this moment to have this conversation. Um, and I, I would like to know more through your lens, absolutely how we're socializing, socializing boys and men, you know, that's part of the conversation. I have a five-year-old boy, um, sex assigned at birth. I have a, a two-year-old girl, sex assigned at birth. And with my reflection as a parent, you know, I we taught our son very early my body, my property. And I remember talking with another parent about that. And they were like, why would you teach that to a boy? And I'm like, whoa, like, <laughs> there it is. Uh, because it's his property regardless. And he needs to learn that other people, it's their property. That's really important that he knows that about his future interactions with the world. Um, but so putting a pin in the conversation about socialization for boys and men, as women, how do we lift one another? How do we speak to whoever's nodding along as you and I are talking about this going like, yes, sign me up for that? How do we do that? Oh, we don't have enough time. But what I will say <laughs> is one, I want to build off of that place at the table kind of metaphor or motif that we were doing. One of my favorite quotes by Shirley Chisholm was if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, right? And I, I have a friend and, um, wow, I can't remember the full quote, but she said something to the effect of, I don't need a place at the table. I have my own table. And so I think that's how we do it. We create our own ways. They might look differently than what the traditional view is of how we create this kinship, this sisterhood, 
these partnerships, these collaborations. So we create our own, but we do it in what that also requires is that we think differently about what that looks like. So for example, as you were mentioning, you know, definitely putting a pin on the piece about boys, but I always love to at least mention this, this piece that we need to give space for boys and men to talk about, even with sexual violence related to them. I think about how media even portrays, you know, men, um, and I even hate the term, you know, because you mentioned Brittany earlier, I'm saying this, about, because people would always ask her about her, her virginity. You talk about Britney Spears. Um, why is that okay to ask anyone about their virginity? But even the, the language in losing your virginity, we don't really say that for men, right? In media, it's um, perpetuated for boys. It's okay if you meet an older woman. That's It's hi- hypersexualized um, when that is, in fact, assault and rape, right? And so definitely putting a pin in that, but offering space of new types of conversations. So when you are at your own table, because you don't have to have a seat at their table, clearly you can create your own table and have these conversations. What is required there is also, we don't have to do what they would do at their table. We can do what works for us and that perhaps might not be the way we were trained. And so that's something I often like to tell, particularly when I talk to clinicians, let's think through how we rethink our training, how we rethink our approaches. I gave a talk recently to residents at um, a medical in a in a medical program, you know, at a at a hospital, uh, medical residents, I should say. And um, this talk was on this history of racism and intersectionality, and they were medical residents. They had never heard of some of these key moments in history that have influenced how they practice medicine, and that really pointed out to me on so I like well I knew that intellectually to hear them talk about it made me think that they're perpetuating a practice that is even harmful and they don't even know the, the type of harm they're perpetuating. So what can we do to answer your question is at this table that we've created for ourselves, we also look at our practices. Is this working? Where did this come from? How can we make it better? That's how we create the change. That's how we change norms. That's how we make them systemic. And that's how we combat these structures that continue to oppress. I like the the simplicity of really complex concepts. But, you know, in what you just said there, because I'm thinking about it working with a client and it's like, well, what do we do with it? So it's, you know, it's one thing for us to make space in the room, to invite it into the room, to meet with a sense of warmth and camaraderie and shared experience um, and just the healing power that's there. But then that next step is what you just said of, well, then how do we make space, you know, create create our own table? How do we as clinicians support women in being aware of how these norms shape, my goodness, the one that I've seen over and over again, asking for a raise or negotiating uh, starting salary? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, on a very basic level, you know, I always, when I teach this to students, I say the gender pay equity, we know there are differences based on gender. There are also differences based on race, but then there are also geographical differences. So for example, um, I'm located in the DC area, but Maryland women, and I think California women are some of the women who make the most money regardless of all of those things. But then if you go further south, 
those numbers change. So when you start thinking about where you're located, what your race is, what your gender is, really has a major impact on how you interact in this world, how you live through this world, how you make your way through this world. And so if we already know that you're starting at a lower level, then you're having to do even more trying to get at an equitable level. And so asking for a raise, asking for a promotion, that also requires you combating maybe years in a culture that said, oh, I value, you know, women are humble, right? I think about how many women are taught to like, you know, just do the work. Someone will recognize how great you are and reward you for that. Women aren't taught how to brag on themselves. And I don't say brag is a bad thing, how to self-promote, right? And so as a result, if you're trying to get a promotion, you're, you're perhaps less likely to practice these self-promoted promoting activities. And we, we see these differences. And there are ways in which we can, we can combat this, right? So why is there a range in salaries when they're posted, right? Why isn't there just one salary? So we know with hiring committees that a lot of times they perpetuate this inequity by thinking that, oh, you know what, let's go ahead and hire this man because they're most likely taking care of a family. But the same thing doesn't happen. Um, and their inequities, for instance, based on um, status, marital status. So I, when I was younger, I remember having a, a work supervisor who expected me to stay at work longer because the expectation was, oh, well, you're young, you don't have kids, um, you can stay longer. And so I had to learn. And I remember my father helping me really think through that. So I'm thankful that I had that type of support to be able to create that boundary. And so for a lot of women, having the confidence, having the skills to create a boundary and say, you know what? No, I don't have kids, but I'm leaving at this time because this is my job and this is what I'm going to do within these confines. Um, But that's a power dynamic that a lot of women don't know how to overcome and to create those boundaries without the threat of losing their job. I appreciate that you brought up the idea of power dynamic in, and I think that is fundamentally what we're talking about. It's loss of power. And when we've lost power due to gender, due to assigned or perceived sex, how does that change our experience in the world? And taking that lens and then putting it on therapy, if we're working with women that have been conditioned to be polite, to say, I'm sorry, to take responsibility for things that aren't at all their responsibility, how does that impact potentially impact therapy. I mean, it, it becomes, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? That's what, that's what happens. <clears throat> we have to really think through a cultural shift. We know that women are more likely to, to go to therapy. We also know that women are more likely to be diagnosed as depressed. Um, and so we know that there are gender differences that could, could be just to participation in the act of therapy. But what if we normalized care, mental health care, ongoing mental health care, and the work that I, you know, I do with young people and even the women I work with in different communities, I say, you need a team. Who's on your team? And I always say, you need to have somebody in a mental health support therapy um, environment that can actually offer that service for you. So I encourage people to start thinking about who's on their team. And how can we make these teams strong and work together? And part of that is recognizing that maybe it's 
we see this more and more in media. People are normalizing therapy. I think the pandemic has also normalized therapy, particularly in marginalized communities. There are more and more platforms available for people for mindfulness, for therapy. There's more and more access that's happening, but there's still so much we need to do. And so we have to make it accessible. We have to normalize it as, as simple as brushing your teeth every day. Yes, today's the day I'm talking to my therapist or as simple as making that appointment to go to the dentist. I'm making an appointment to go see my therapist, um, even if it's virtually. This is how we allow space for women to feel comfortable, to talk with someone. And again, it's a, it's a marathon. So I'm not saying this is a cultural shift that happens overnight. But I will say we have had some instances in the last year to catalyze that, to really quicken up the speed. I think with the Me Too movement, I think with the pandemic, I think with recent um, racial trauma we've experienced, more and more people are at home sitting and thinking about a lot of things. A lot of triggers are happening for people in this space because they're forced to stay at home. And so creating a culture where it's okay to have a conversation about that one thing that you had buried so deeply and making people feel safe enough to be committed to that consistency of, look, I'm going to be here. You can come here. We can talk. And eventually you'll hit that point where they open up. I had read this really brilliant article and I am remiss in not remembering the author's name, so I apologize. Uh, but there was this article about um, the idea of being a guest in someone's house and that this was written by a black man. He was talking about this concept of what it means to be a guest in somebody's house when you are either the member of a single marginalized community or multiple marginalized communities and how different that is from being part of the majority. Um, and I guess in this case, women are technically the majority and yet still marginalized and minoritized. But um, past that point, this article was talking about just acknowledging that phenomenon of feeling like you're a guest in somebody else's house. And when I translate this into therapy, isn't part of the power here then to make it very clear for our female therapy clients that you are not a guest in this house? Yes, for sure. And that's why... It's, you know, and that's how I was raised, right? When someone comes to the house, regardless of who they are, you show them a level of respect um, that maybe you would show more than your family, right? And that's important because you want them to feel warm, safe, relaxed, secure, all of those things respected. And so what therapists can do is to be consistent with that, right? I think if you're really trying to get women to engage, to open up, um, in a way, in the society, in this moment, this political moment, et cetera, all of the above, it's that consistency. And that's something I know that therapists know, but sometimes we need, you know, people need reminders. And I think when people have that level of consistency, they know that, you know what, she's asking me how I'm doing. That's great. And she's asking for feedback. That's great. And all of these other practices that therapists do, that really not only engage, but recognize when they've pushed too much. 
and that maybe we don't go that far this time, but that they're almost ready for the next time and letting people feel safe. And I think it's just being consistent in that. That's how you break down those barriers of people opening up, but also normalizing. I can't say that enough. We need to normalize care, mental health care. I had the experience once of I was working with a young woman and when she first came in, I can only describe her posture as like perched on the edge of my couch, just perched with her legs perfectly poised and tucked underneath her body and her hands on her lap and perfect posture. And as time passed and we got to know each other, how much her posture changed and we talked about that phenomenon. And it, to me, was an extension of that idea that it was so clear that she felt like she was always a guest in somebody else's house that no place was home for her as a woman um, coming from her particular religious background, uh, from her culture, like there were reasons that she had learned to be so poised, so perfect, so polite. And how many years now, you know, she's spent trying to take up space and, and make some space for herself and, and the importance of my continued effort to try to make my proverbial house, her house, <laughs> so that in therapy, she's not a guest in this house. And I, as I'm talking about this, I just think there's so much power in that concept of healing, going back, building upon what you've said, you know, about sisterhood, about lifting each other up, that all these examples are ways that when we lift other women, when we see other women, we lift ourselves. Yeah, no, I love I love the idea. So I'm I'm also a yoga instructor. And so one of the things that I tell people when they come is that you've given yourself this gift for the next however many minutes. And I think sometimes we don't even recognize that. I think for a lot of marginalized groups and as someone who is um of a couple of mar- marginalized groups for sure, I think about there're not too many places in this world that are truly safe for black girls and black women. And that's a reality I live with. And there's so many other groups out there who have multiple marginalized identities. They don't feel safe anywhere. And so if they're coming to their therapist, that's probably the safest they're going to feel. Because for a moment, if it's 30 minutes, if it's 60 minutes, if it's 90 minutes, they know that they can say whatever they need to say and hopefully have no judgment, right? Um, Because even as a person of color having therapists, and I know we're not talking so much about that, it's it's the fact that they're going to see therapy, one, is a big deal. Two, to be able to feel comfortable opening up to your therapist, that's a big step in itself. And so there are these multiple benchmarks that are being met. And I think it's it's important to recognize that you welcome these people into your virtual offices and or your actual offices, depending on where you are. And they are managing so much just to get there, not just for their mental health, but just if they're from marginalized identities from all of these spaces of neglect by society. That's kind of one of my takeaways from our conversation is bringing that to light and acknowledging because I think our society has you know, women's suffrage was just over 100 years ago, which in the scheme of American history is really short. (laughs) And we, you know, there's so many inequities that you and I could sit here and talk and just list them and go, okay, here are all the things and gender bias and, and salaries and maternal mental health and like all, you know, all of these different things that we could go through and say, yes, they're very clear traumas uh, and uh, neglect situations associated with 
having a woman card in your wallet, if you will. And I think just starting there and taking off, I guess, the societal lens that has says, oh, well, this is just a woman in front of me. And it's like, well, yeah, but that carries a lot of implications in the way that that person is moving through the world, just like these other elements of, of other marginalized identities and the overlap between them. Um, you know, and, and you're speaking from someone with multiple marginalized identities. I, too, as a queer woman, my awareness of how my sexuality is viewed and how that affects how I show up in a room or what's expected of me. These are things that we are um, are. I think aware of to some degree as ourselves, but needing to be aware of that with our clients and just set the stage of like, hey, there's this thing. Let's talk about this thing instead of just it was like, oh, it's a woman, you know, or oh, that's a black person. It's like, well, it's a little more complex than that. Yeah, I I really whenever and this happens to me even in the classroom, right? So when I have students who show up, I don't make too many assumptions when I look at them about their race, their gender, et cetera. But I also acknowledge it. Right. So it's a very fine line that you want to acknowledge that I don't know their walk. I don't know what they're experiencing every day based on these different identities that I see, that I hear them talk about if they disclose. Right. Or if they're invisible. Exactly. Right. And so as a result of that, they have a whole different part, a whole different worldview from mine. And how do we find those special places where we connect? And how does that connection become one that's going to be helpful to them finding the supports that they need to thrive? And I think that's the goal. But we also forget sometimes that we have to do the work as well of not bringing our bias, not bringing our assumptions in about their walk and their story, but acknowledging that they probably have a walk and a story that I will never understand, but I will listen when they're ready to share it. And I think that is that consistency, that marathon versus the sprint. That's what we need to do. I am so glad today of all days that we had this conversation. Um, Dr. Barlow, for our listeners that want to learn more about you and about your incredible work, um, how do they do that? Oh, thank you. Well, wonderful. My website is my name is www.jamitabarlow.com, J-A-M-E-T-A-B-A-R-L-O-W.com. And you can email me, Jamita Writes. It's very easy. J-A-M-E-T-A-W-R-I-T-E-S at gmail.com. It's been my absolute pleasure being here today. Happy, happy birthday on <laughs> International <laughs> Women's Day. What an amazing time. So good to be with you. Thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate having you. Bye. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.